Good to see you. Did I get that right? As a British guy in America for the last few days, I've had the same few questions fired at me quite a few times. So I'm just going to answer them to you now to get it out of the way and done with. Yes, this is the way I speak all the time. Yes, I do love the Queen. No, I have never worked as a chimney sweep. Yes, Doctor Who and Downton Abbey are the greatest TV shows ever created. Yes, I have stayed awake at night worrying about the stranger I forgot to say please and thank you to. And no, I am okay with Prince Harry marrying an American. <laughs> They're not in line for the throne, so it's fine. <laughs> really though, as a Brit in America, I have been bowled over by the welcome that I have received and the generosity that I have seen manifested, both by my hosts who looked after me in Seattle and by everyone in this um, in this place. So. Thank you for that, and as a Brit, I'd like to say there is so much that we have to learn from you. My story of generosity begins at a young age. Every night, my parents would get all four of us kids together. They would read to us, they would pray together, read to us from the Bible, and read to us missionary stories. Now, my overwhelming experience of childhood was one of boredom. Everything was boring. Life was so dull. But every night when my parents got us together and read to us these missionary stories, I was excited. These were adventure stories that really happened. One that stuck out to me particularly was the life of Hudson Taylor. This man, aged 21, got on a boat, traveled across the world for five months to get to China. In China, his wife died, one of his daughters died. He faced great suffering, and yet this man transformed the country. 150 years later, largely thanks to this man and the missionaries that he raised up, there are over 100 million Christians in that nation. I heard all of these stories and I thought, wow, this is real life. These are people who have not only discovered something that is worth dying for, they have found the secret of living as well. You read this man's story, you read about the joy and the peace that he writes about in his journal, it will blow you away. So growing up, I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be a missionary. That's my dream. I enrolled in medicine for that end. I thought, hey, it could be useful on the mission fields. Then one day, I was 18 years old, just getting ready to go off to medical school, and my grand says to me, oh, Eddie, there's this Indian missionary guy speaking at our church tonight. You know, you're into missionary work, right? Do you want to come along? So I said, I've got nothing better to do tonight. Okay. So I walk into the church, and there's Das. Come to India. Come and see the mission fields. Rather just like this photo. Now... I didn't know what I was getting myself in for. In Cambridge, we do not do charisma. So somebody standing at the front of the church saying, come on, get out there. But um, the stories that he started sharing, they sounded like the stories I'd had read to me by my parents growing up. And I thought, wow, you mean these people are still alive today? I thought these were locked away in the past, 150 years ago. You're saying, I've got a chance to come and see them, come and learn from them? That's exactly what I want. So 
I went to India. In short, I wasn't disappointed. Had the chance to worship with many churches. Here's one of them right here. I want you to remember this church. This is in a village called Axi. Had the chance to worship with these churches. And it occurred to me that five years ago, the gospel had never come to these villages. And now there was a church there. And it struck me, this is history in the making. 2,000 years and nothing, and now there's a church there. A sociologist could say, well, you know, who cares? A few believers in an unimportant village in the middle of nowhere. That's what they might say. But if that village has never heard the good news of Jesus, and now there is a church there, that's going to be written in God's history book. And here I was in the UK. My real passion was for evangelism. Yet I was finding that I struggled to bring even a couple of my friends along to church. They weren't interested. So that was me. But here were these Indian guys planting churches into previously unreached villages. And it occurred to me, you know what? I don't think you guys need me as a missionary. You're already doing it. How can I be a part of what you're doing? And that was when that said to me, well, the thing is, Ed, you know, we've got all this manpower, all these people who are ready and willing to go, but there's no one to send them. Their own churches are struggling to look after their own pastors, let alone send out others as missionaries. So I said, wait, hold on a minute. You mean this isn't happening for money? You know, money, that's the one thing that I have. That's one thing that I can easily get. Bringing people into church, that's hard. Money? I've just got to turn up at work. I don't even have to do something well. I've just got to be there. <laughs> so I said, right, how much do they need? That said to me, well, in your terms, about $80 a month. $80 a month! People aren't getting sent to unreached villages for $80 a month. So I did a, a little bit of maths in my head, and I realized if I was willing to stay in the UK work as a doctor here, still embrace this missionary lifestyle, but earn a stack of cash and give it to these guys to finance what they were doing, I could finance 20, 50, maybe even 100 of them. So that became my new goal, from being a medical missionary to being a money-making missionary. <laughs> I moved into Cardiff in Wales, and at this time I was just thinking so much about the sacrifices my brothers and sisters were making in India and how far every penny could go to helping them that, um, I have to be honest with you, I just went completely over the top, completely overboard. I tried not to spend any money whatsoever. I found the cheapest accommodation to live in. I managed to get my food budget down to about $15 a week. I steadfastly refused to buy any new clothes whatsoever. It was okay for the first year or so because the clothes I had tended to last, but by the second year, I had these jeans, big slashes were opening in front of them. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll sew them up. It turns out sewing is actually a little bit more difficult than just attacking clothes with a needle and thread. It looked terrible. I went home, I see my brother, he goes, Ed, what's happened to you? You look like some kind of undead zombie. I walk into the house, I see mum, and now mum, she's a posh Cambridge lady. She sees me looking like this. I, I think she was two seconds away from disowning me. I had these shoes that had started to disintegrate. There was a, a big hole in the bottom of them, of them. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll buy some duct tape. 
I got this tape and wrapped it around the shoes really well. It looked great, held them together, and it was fine, so long as it was dry. But this was Wales, and it rains every day. The moisture would just seep up into the shoe. My foot was permanently wet for six months. It is a testimony to the grace of God that I didn't contract some kind of tropical disease in my right foot. But God has more grace I had some friends there, and they were looking at this strange lifestyle that I was living, and they said, hey, why are you doing this? And I explained to them about the plight of the church planters in India, and they said, wow, is that what $80 a month can do? I want to give that, or maybe I'll grab my friend, and together we'll do it. Then my little sister, she came on board as well. Big breakthrough was when my brother said, hey, this is great. I want to, I want to help. My brother, he, was, he trained as an engineer. His passion was, I want to do something that won't be done if I don't do it. He said, if I, as an engineer, build a bridge, if I wasn't there, somebody else would build it instead. But if I earn some money and I give it away, that is money that is being used for the kingdom that wouldn't have been used if I hadn't given it. So that's what I want to do. So he, he left engineering and he started a couple of app companies trying to make as much money as possible. So Alex was wonderful. He came and he brought all of his business best practice and his experience into helping us develop this work, which was beginning to grow. Next, we had a, a businessman or two from Cambridge who came on board. We explained the impact of what was happening in India, and they said, that makes sense. We'd love to get involved. And we started to receive our first five-digit donations, five-figure donations. And about that time, we were reflecting on what was happening. And we said, look, people are stepping forward in the UK to send these workers. And the workers in India are multiplying. They're going, they're planting churches, and they're raising up new workers from within those church plants. And we said, hey, this is something that could really take off. This could be so much bigger than we've currently envisaged. When I reflect on my life, um, you could say, I'm white, I'm a man, I'm heterosexual, I think. Could I have more privilege? But truth be told, I don't think there's any privilege relative to the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus. And that was my passion, making sure every person in India had the chance to hear the good news of Jesus. We started to do some reading around, and we learned that there were as many as half a million villages, 500,000 villages, that didn't have any permanent Christian presence. How are these people going to hear the good news of Jesus without Christians there to share it with them? So that was the need. 500,000 churches, a church in every village in India. So we launched our charity. We called it that name to remind ourselves of the need. 500,000 churches. That was four years ago. During that time, God has blessed the work, the work tremendously. Four years ago, we were supporting 30 workers in India. Now, there are 360. This is a map showing their geographical locations. Across the church plants, 22,000 people are coming for worship. I want to tell you about just two of these people. Their names are Belvinder and Surinder. This is Surinder here, and I'll show you Belvinder in just a moment. He's the guy with the crutches. 
Belvinda and Surinder chose a village right in the northern part of India, by the Himalayas, just south of Nepal. Just to give you some context for this place, there is a lot of darkness in their village. Their village is like the church I showed you earlier, Aksi, Neharidwa. India accounts for one-third of all female suicides on the planet. That means the rate of suicide in women in India is twice the global average. It's an oppressed place. Sexual assault is common. Domestic abuse is rampant. Alcoholism and all the relationship breakdown and destruction of family that it brings is endemic. Nowhere is this more true than in the village of Axi by Haridwar. The people there are a spiritual people. It's a place of pilgrimage. The holy river Ganges flows through the city. People go and bathe in the city looking for cleansing, looking for help from God for the problems that they have. And Belvinda and Surinda saw that and they said, that's where we want to go. These people are seeking help from God and we want to take it to them. These people need to hear about Jesus. They got on a train, they went to Axi, they got off that train. For the first three nights, they slept on the streets. They had nowhere to stay. For many nights, they had nothing to eat apart from a three-pence packet of biscuits. But a family took them in. And after time, relationships were formed, and that family came to faith. So did a couple of other families. Things were progressing well, so Surinder decided to move back south to finish his training. Just to give you some context, these two guys are the same age as me and my brother. When they went to that village six years ago, they were 22 and 20. So Surinder leaves and Belvinder stays by himself. Now, as so often happens, when the gospel makes progress, opposition starts to rise. People started to say, hey preacher, we don't want you here. They'd get drunk and they'd smash the empty alcohol bottles against his wall. One time, Surinda gets a phone call, and it's his brother, it's Belvinda. Our Belvinda says, there's a crowd outside the house. They've been here for some time now. They say, when I come out, they're going to kill me. I really think it's this this time. But do one thing. If they kill me, don't take my body back home to Punjab. I want to be buried here. These are my people now. Good news is, Belvinder is still alive and with us today. He exited the house. And those first few families of believers came out with him. And they said, if you want to harm this man, you're going to have to hurt us first. And the villagers gave up and went away. Belvinder is still in that place today. And there's a church meeting there with 51 people who are attending. Here it is. Belvinda was one of the first church planters whom we started to support. In fact, it was my own little sister when she was still a student who gave from what little money she had to help put him in the mission fields. Her generosity begat the generosity of Belvinda, the generosity of his entire life. And there are so many people, hundreds, thousands of people like Belvinda, like Surinda, who are being supported across the world by people such as yourselves. They may never have a chance to come here. So on behalf of them, I want to thank you. Thank you for your generosity 
and how it has enabled them to be generous with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about medicine, I find it incredibly motivating to think that with a single night shift that I do, we can send somebody to the unreached villages for an entire year. We can support Belvinda for a whole year. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning, or gets me out of bed at night for my <laughs> night shift. Brothers and sisters, people think that being a doctor is a wonderful profession because you have the chance to save somebody's life. The truth is, doctors don't save any lives. All of our patients still die. All we're doing on our very best days is putting off the inevitable, postponing death. We're not lifesavers, we're death postponers. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ really can save lives forever and ever and ever and bring life in all of its fullness and the here and the now. It was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us by our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. This was the price at which we were redeemed. This is what God has given to us. How are we going to be generous to all the other people who don't yet know this king? Thank you.